All right, well, if you've uh, got a phone, turn to Luke 13, I think. 10 or 13, I'll tell you in a second. Just Gospel of Luke for now. And we're going to read some scripture in a minute. Um, I I believe the message today is going to um, be life-giving. Sometimes we've, throughout COVID, we've dealt with some pretty heavy stuff, right? And uh, today I don't feel like it's, that heaviness is not the, the word of the day. It's going to be, it's going to be perspective. I feel like a really refreshed perspective. We're going to jump into the, the realm of when we take on the Lord's perspective. It sets you free to true freedom. Perspective is, is one of the, the most glorious gifts that the Lord gives us. Be transformed or be renewed or by the transformation or the renewal of the mind. The true transformation is by a mind renewal, perspective shift. Uh, repentance at the heart of repentance is really just something of, of that heart as well. And, and so as we, as we jump in, and I'm going to try to multi, multitask because I'm one of those where I've got this thing that's trying to connect. I don't really want you to connect. I just want you to stop trying to connect to the internet so that I can uh, get on here. All right, it's not working. James or Suzanne or someone that knows your internet can you just make sure that I'm like connected to the right thing and maybe that'll work in a second? Um, okay, I think I got it. I think I got it. Thank you. Thank you for that attempt. So I want to start with a story. Uh, it's not a long one. Um, but essentially, I, I was reminded of, uh, of, of, a, of a friend that was, was on an airplane. And on the airplane, he, he, he got into a conversation about what he did. And that's like maybe the most um, common thing ever when you get into that kind of like, oh, what are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. I don't want to talk to you. Please let me. Do you see these noise-canceling headphones? That's what they're for, to cancel you and the noise. Um, that's, <laughs> that's not really what I think all the time on the plane, but I have thought it at one point. And uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was jealous of the idea that this friend had. And he said something to the effect of, oh, I, I manage a team of people. Uh, they're part of the largest organization on earth. And the person goes, oh, well, what, what field is that in? You intrigue me with your world-renowned organization. And he said something to the effect of, well, we deal mostly with sickness. And uh, while, while we're the largest charitable organization on earth as well, we also specialize in education, compassion, mental health, physical health, politics, ethics, and stewarding the planet. Wow. What's the name of this organization? And as you may guess, he goes, well, it's uh, the Global Church of Jesus. And I'm a pastor. I'm like, oh, savvy. And that started a little bit of a convo. The point is, actually nothing to do with the rest of their conversation. Do you have perspective on the fact that you're part of the most significant organization, actually the largest organization on earth? Uh, I was was thinking uh, just about the expanse of this. And in the, some irony when you get into scripture sometimes. And uh, Jesus was, was, taken, was taken out by the Romans. And the Romans, um, they, they obviously were the authority of the day. But there were four reasons when Jesus was born and the Jews were living in exile. They believed that the coming of the kingdom, that was Jesus' message, the kingdom. Four reasons why, um, it, or four results they thought that the kingdom was going to have. The first was that it was his Messiah, his Messiah coming. That was a political power issue. The second was the Roman authority was going to be overthrown. That's a political power issue. The third was the people were going to be let out of exile, political power issue. And the fourth was the temple is going to be reestablished, which was 
very much and still is to this very day a political power issue. Politics were a very prevalent reality in the days of Jesus. I would like to present to you, if you think this is intense, try being a Jew oppressed by Romans that had been in power for hundreds of years and would continue to be for hundreds of years. And then just think for a moment. Put, we've been talking about a prophetic people. Put on a prophetic lens for a moment to see through time. And think about Peter, Paul, and Mary. What, if they were alive today and you showed them Rome and go, oh, there is, uh, there's your basilica, Peter. It's the largest church on earth. It seats 60,000 people. Oh, and the members, it's, uh, it's got about 2.5 billion going on. Last we checked, more or less. Huh. And where is it, you said? It's in the heart of Rome? Yeah, the heart of Rome. And the leader of that church lives in Rome with supreme authority over a special country that's just for him, basically, and the, the rest of the country can't touch him? Yeah. Yeah, he's got quite a gig there over in his basilica. <laughs> huh. Perspective. I guess Jesus wasn't so anti-political after all in some way, shape, or form, or at least he started a movement that if you just peer out, all those, all those people, Peter himself, that thought the revolution was going to start with the sword in his hand, chopped in ear, they were corrected by the waves of history. I think I've, I probably have to say something to the effect of a large church in the middle of Rome, led by a pope, with all the other history attached to it, was not the goal I just want to give history some perspective, and that is that kingdoms and governments rise and fall, and so will ours. But history will remember the Christians that lived in each generation. How will we be remembered? Perspective. Just even bringing that up to me does something and shifts something of my perspective. I want to start there, and then I want us to remember that the message and mission of the church has always been the kingdom. Jesus went about, what was his message? It was about this kingdom. N.T. Wright says something to the effect of, Christians misunderstand the phrase of kingdom to mean a place, namely heaven, where we are saved souls that go to live after we die. But it really meant nothing of the sort in Jesus' world. It was simply a Jewish way of talking about Israel's God becoming king. And when this God became king, the whole world, the whole space of time, would at last be put to rights. And yet... In that day and age, they thought that that was going to be a Messiah, a Roman authority being overturned, the people being let out of exile, and the temple being reestablished. And they thought all those things meant the same thing. And all those things were worthwhile things to care about. I want us to be the kind of people that don't say, oh, it's just Jesus, let's stop caring about politics. That is a lie from hell too. And I think that's ultimately what the enemy wants to distort our unity around. The enemy wants to distort our unity to just go back to let's just focus on Jesus and, and not care about the political issues. What if, what if, because our unity 
is based on the kingdom and not the issues, that we can have a diversity of passion towards issues without saying my agreement with you on the issues is going to dictate my allegiance and unity with you towards a king and his kingdom. If that is possible, there is endless hope for us to impact the world and the political spirit. And that is a breath of fresh air. That's a perspective shift. And I love the fact that Martin Luther King never gave us a 10-point plan. He gave us a dream. He painted a picture. He told us how he dreamed of the children playing of every color and every background. And he painted a picture of a place that we all wanted to believe in. And Jesus painted that picture of kingdom in a very similar fashion. The parables are all about what the kingdom is like and what does it look like. But he ultimately died at the hands of the government he was meant to overthrow by those who were under a political spirit instead of his. Do not be duped into coming under a political spirit while you pursue the right political cause. We live in, in a moment of history where the largest church, the largest denomination of the largest faith of the most influential organization in the history of humanity sits in the center of the city of the greatest empire that's ever existed. What will the next thousand years look like? We are an eternal people. And that breaks my brain. And the prophets of the day couldn't see any better than they can't see today. <laughs> and yet that doesn't mean erase them. Jesus didn't say, hey, John the Baptist is losing his mind there in prison. He's sending his men out to, to, to question me. And so I'm cutting him off. He's a false prophet or blah, 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 blah. He disencourages John. John, remember what I'm doing. Look at what the Lord is doing. The blind see. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is he who's not offended at me. And then he continues to say, there's none greater than John. All along the prophets were until him. So John was a prophet, John the Baptist. And we have prophets today that missed some stuff. They focused on some stuff maybe they weren't supposed to focus on. John was unable to see through the scope of human history to fully grasp what he had heard from the Lord that was right. And I wonder today if we can just purge the stuff that's causing the fog, that's causing us not to trust in human leaders, human prophets, human pastors in every way, shape, and form, or at least kind of be a little bit fragile and shaken. And if we can say, you know what? We were never meant to trust in them anyway, and this didn't disqualify them. All they're doing is pointing us to him, to his voice, to his word. And maybe our perspective shift needs to go beyond what we are doing for ourselves right now and look beyond what we're building towards and the picture of the kind of future that we really believe we're a part of pursuing. So here's, here's another thing I'd like us to be reminded of. What really unites our faith? I read this to the little class that I do on Fridays. What is our perspective on agreement? We all know tying the Catholic Church to the Protestant Church. The Protestants, essentially, we broke apart because of agreement. Or we saw that there was bad doctrine, bad practice, and so forth. And we're like, we're going to break apart, uh, pursue purity, and so forth. And that's had a lot of good. But it's also meant that there has developed a mindset of division based on agreement. But what has not changed is the ultimate reality of what we stand on, of our faith. And that looks like this. I want to just read to you 
the Nicene Creed. Maybe you haven't read it in a while. And it goes like this. There's not a follower of Jesus that can't say, I'm united with you on this pursuit and this reality. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. I love that. It's like a poetic decree. Who for us men, for, us, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic or global apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Can you say amen? Amen. We're unified under that. All the other things that we might disagree on passionately, they're worth pursuing, but I'm unified on this. Doctrine may go in every different direction. This is solid. I can disagree on a whole lot of stuff. I can disagree on the role of, of, of women or on the Holy Spirit or, or on a plethora of other topics and feel super strong about them and say, this is the way we do things and why. But I'm unified, not over those things, but under this. That is such a relief. Can we just say, ah. amen. Okay. So let's go to, uh, to Luke really quick. First, Perspective of our family. So we read in the New Testament of the kingdom being ushered into when Jesus became a child in the womb of Mary and born according to the Jewish prophecies. Yes? Yes. This is called the incarnation or the embodiment of human flesh. And the Son of God meeting people where they're at and merging the sacred and the secular to meet them. Once again, this all means the reality that God is pursuing us from heaven to earth and establishing this decree. I'm with you. God is with you. Or... You'll never walk alone. Shout out. Liverpool, Manchester United right now, but don't tell me the score. I'm watching it after this. Okay. Many of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's fine. Just focus. That's the perspective of our family. God is with you. You will never walk alone. Moses, you will never walk alone. Abraham, you'll never walk alone. Jesus, God gave you his one and only son to know that you will never be alone, to show you the father. And then in Luke 13, we have this, this dynamic with, with the woman uh, and then the mustard seed and leaven. I want to read this scripture um, because it's, it's so beautiful and so powerful. And essentially what happens here 
is we have this woman with a disabling spirit, and of course it's the Sabbath, because Jesus likes to do his, his most fun on the Sabbath to piss off the people that he's really trying to aggravate, and those are the people of the church of that day, the religious spirit leaders. And he goes, I was, he was teaching, this is Luke 13, and he was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had, been, had a disabling spirit for 18 years. They wanted you to know how long it had been. This was not like a monthly thing. This wasn't a bad thing that happened in marriage. This was 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called over to her and said, woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her. All kinds of things he's not supposed to do. Addressing her, laying hands on her, Sabbath. Mm, they're getting angrier and angrier. And her, immediately, it says, she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue... The one that's supposed to recognize or demonstrate purity and the, the voice of God was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and broken a rule. And he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. He wasn't present with the work of God that was right before him because he was obsessed with the right way, the right rule, in striving, working, establishing a way of life that could be attained by effort and yesing and doing and checking. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Basically like the stuff that gives you life, if it needs water today, are you not going to give it water? Yeah, you will idiot. Jesus calls people idiots all the time. He just uses the word hypocrites. So if you're looking for a word that's like Jesus proof, just use hypocrites. Just make sure that it's true and you're just not, you know, fleshing yourself out there. Just an advice. He goes, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and give him water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day? In other words, this is not a work of God because of her sin. This is Satan bounding this woman. I set her free today. Can you be present with the work of God? And as... He said these things. All his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He shifted the perspective of the people. And he said, therefore, and then he explains how this applies to the kingdom. What's the kingdom of, like? What's the kingdom of God like, he says, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made its nest in its branches. And again, he says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, and the woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He's, he's sure to say the woman. Luke emphasizes women more than any other gospel. Why? Because they were oppressed, and they were, he was setting them free intentionally. So he gave story after story after story of a woman, and even, like, there's no point for him to pull out a story of a woman right here. What does it matter if it's a woman or a man? It's because he's showing that the key figure here is a woman. A woman can actually breathe life and demonstrate what the kingdom is like. In other words, the women get me, the men don't. These are, sub, these are subversive little tenets and points that the gospel writer is making. Oh, don't tell me that the, that the Bible isn't for women. So what does that mean? So the mustard seed, you may or may not know this. 
that would have been the smallest known seed to the entire audience that Jesus would ever speak to. And it would become a tree. And the mustard tree refers to a large herbal plant that grows to the height of about 8 to 12 feet tall. The birds would then make nests that emphasize the surprising supernatural result of this tiny little seed. So the whole point was you can't even wrap your mind around how a mustard seed becomes a tree to the point where birds make their nests in it. That's a miracle. And the enormous size of the final plant in comparison to the very small seed which it grew showed that the Jews expected the kingdom to come with a special apocalyptic power. How are we expecting the kingdom to come right now in this political climate? Just a thought. They expected God's judgment to come on all evil, and hence Jesus' teaching that would, it would essentially then arrive in an insignificant way. Jesus is saying, you better brace yourself for the insignificant, or you're not going to see the significant, because you're going to have to see with prophetic eyes. You're going to have to see with my eyes, my supernatural eyes. Not like, oh, you know, nothing is really happening. We sometimes can do that. You can, you can use that as a cop-out. That's the danger. Because much of the church will use that as an excuse to just move away from pain, move away from discomfort, and just like, oh, trust God. It's all in God's hands, under God's control. No, 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 no. He gave up, he gave up his life. They wanted to kill a lot of other life, his followers and the people that thought the Messiah was going to look like this and that and that. And he got serious. You can only say this when you step into what you're going to give your life for. Choose the hill that you will die on. That was the last message that Jesus gave the world. This is the hill I will die on. The world needs to see what hills we're willing to die on and to die for, to sacrifice our lives for. When we do, when we plant ourselves on the type of hills that we know we were meant to give our lives for, our message our seeds, they are in the kind of soil that can have a supernatural effect. And you do not have to worry about tending to the blossoming of those seeds. Your job was to set them in the soil, plant yourself on the hill, give your life to it, and trust him to make his supernatural effect on the created order. That's a perspective shift that I need. What kind of seeds am I planting that I will never see the fruit of? Many of the trees in ancient Israel as well, they would take a generation to even grow, to have any fruit. So when you were planting, you weren't planting for anything that you were going to reap the crop from. It was for your children. We need a perspective shift of the kinds of seeds that we are, we are planting in the ground right now on hills that we are ready to die on because we know that our kids, and I don't mean just your personal kids, every single one of us is part of a family where we are eternal because we have a family that we are continually investing in. My children are drawing not just from me, but every single one of those in the community that follow Jesus. They are, they are being imparted gifts, revelations, and seeds in every shape and scope of sphere of influence of life in order that I can die today a joyful, peaceful, content human being because what I have put 
my roots in and my seeds in. Similar to the mustard seed then, this yeast example that Jesus also gave. This minute little tiny quantity of yeast that he talked about can permeate a large amount of dough to produce a large amount of bread. Three measures would have produced enough bread to feed 100 people. Some think that these parables teach only the contrast between the small beginning and the large end result. The small beginning of Jesus and his little 12 people and his death and then the vast expanse of a 2.5 billion person church. It was just about him saying the gradual growth process of the ways of the kingdom and do not miss what's happening from the start to the finish. We sometimes miss the process of our entire life. As we were praying on Thursday night, for those that would join us, that's another little shout out. Thursdays, Thursday morning, we've got men for the next two weeks, 645 at our place. Thursday nights, everyone's invited uh, to make space for just worship and encounter. And we're going to just make space for the Holy Spirit to, to minister and uh, without an agenda. Uh, that's Thursday nights at 630 at our place. As we were worshiping this past week, it was, uh, uh, there was this, this theme of bread, and Susie got this beautiful song, and uh, it had just confirmed the picture I had even been been praying into and trying to figure out. And then she started singing about 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 bread, and I'm like, oh, now I got to share this picture. And and the the point though is, <laughs> and then the the fun part was that we eventually at one point we were feeding each other without touching each other, and it was, you know, it took a moment to feel stupid and awkward and silly. And you know, when you do that, you release something. You don't take yourself too seriously. And it was, it was just life-giving. When you just receive like a child, laugh like a child, eat and share like children again, but realize that God gives bread. He came from the house of bread in Bethlehem to remember that everything you need, your sustenance, comes from him. And it's so simple. And I mess everything up and I need to go back to it. And when we take communion... We're remembering that everything I need is in the bread and the blood. The bread to sustain me, the blood to cover me. Do you live your life with that simple conviction that everything in my life is under that reality? The body and the blood. That's a perspective shift. I receive it again today, God. And as we were worshiping and pressing into that, I, I, just, I just feel again to remind us. He's simply giving you something to eat. He will always provide your sustenance, your food, your life source. And he demonstrated that by giving his life for you. But will you miss the process that's happening as, as we were just, we went over and prayed for Susie. Is Susie here today? I don't know if she's here. As, as we were praying for, because um, we just, I don't know how that even happened. We just ended up praying for different people for different things. And, and I, just, I just got this, this, this uh, kind of picture and emphasis in my spirit over her about how as we go, as we live our life, the process, and I was kind of speaking over her, but I speak over you right now. We sometimes think the goal is to get to the finish line. The goal is to find our calling and then to get to this place where we've established uh, a career. We've established a family. We've established a business. We've established a church. 
And all of a sudden we realize, now the Lord actually could care less about where it landed or where it's going, but how I'm getting there. Some of the saddest stories in history are those that end their life and they have achieved so much and their biggest regret was how they got there, what they missed along the way. We are a kind of people, a kingdom people that don't miss the process. Do not miss the process of being formed into his kind of people that rule in his kind of kingdom. That is the life-giving nature that others are going to see and be drawn in towards. They don't care about your end goal. Have you ever told someone about a business that you're starting or a new venture or a new physical workout program and you just tell them all about like the pounds you're going to lose or the business that you're, like the money that you're going to make or you just tell them all about this? There was once a church planner that came into Chicago and in our neighborhood and I, I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was a, a seminary student. But I got told by at least two or three other pastors that he met with all the local pastors thinking he was going to be like very like, nice to tell them that, that he's going to plant the church here. This is what their strategy is. And they plan to have this many people in this many years. <laughs> Just so you should know. <laughs> I, I didn't meet one pastor that was blessed by that, that conversation. And I didn't meet one pastor that was intimidated by this guy either. It was more like, oh, that's cute. Good, good for you. And nothing of unity happened, nothing of connection happened, nothing of interest happened. It was like, forget about him, blah, 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 move on, he'll learn. And I wonder how many of us are focused on letting people know, or at least ourselves, it's usually a self-talk, right? I'm aiming for this. As opposed to, what kind of things inspire you? That person that just started that new physical workout regime or a diet or a business, and it's like, I can't tell you how fun this is or rewarding it is or worthwhile it is. And they tell you the hows and the, how they're being effective and stories of life that are exciting and inspiring and you want to take part in it. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Whether you do it or not, you're just like, you're engaged with it. And you're saying, oh, this person is, in, they're not there yet, but they're on a journey. And you're different just by starting the process, just by entering into embracing the challenge and the lifestyle. And this is the kingdom, not an end goal. Because we have screwed up the gospel when we say the end goal is to get to heaven. When Jesus says the end goal is to bring heaven to earth with him into every broken place without knowing the time or the ending and how this is going to play out. I just know who I am, who I'm for, what I bring. And I start low. That's the kingdom. I want to end with one other perspective shift. Um, my brother did this recently and just reminded me. Um, and uh, uh, Chris Valentin shares a bit about this, um, denominationalism versus apostleships. And I think it's a really helpful thing to frame uh, what we believe about building the kingdom. When a church is built on the kingdom, you shift from a realm of, of just being another denomination. There's actually nothing wrong with denominations. Nothing. In fact, most of them were started for absolute necessity type of reasons. So this has nothing to do with bashing denominations. It has everything to do with a spirit that continues throughout history when you divide because of agreement or disagreement. What happens in apostleships is that you focus the entire covenant community around family. And whenever you use the concept of, when you lose family in the concept of how you do life in the kingdom, you've lost the entire concept of the kingdom because the kingdom is always built on a father that sent a son that had a family called Israel that is inviting the other people in. 
the other nations in. And so when we've lost that, we've just completely lost everything. And in denominationalism, in short, you see things like you preach to convince people rather to inspire people. To inspire someone is actually more about causing people to think and then to have an idea and then to form an opinion. But, but in denominationalism, we, we don't like opinions in denominationalism because if you have an opinion, that forms a potential disagreement with somebody else. And if you disagree with somebody else, that can cause a split or a division. So pastors typically don't like people with different opinions in their church or d- different disagreements because that can lead to all kinds of different... And so what have we tried to do? We've tried to make sure that everyone agrees on everything. Or you, you lead from a super strong place where it's like, I'm the authority, and if you disagree with me, God bless you, but just study this verse a little bit, and you'll completely align with me 100%. And then if there is still disagreement, it's viewed as disloyalty. And then it has a temptation to be completely based on fear. Don't allow people to think for themselves. They might disagree. That's dangerous. They think for themselves, that can cause division. Disagreement then is disloyalty, and if we don't agree, we can't continue in relationship because our loyalty is going to be compromised. Our relationship cannot exist in that environment. So there's no freedom for disagreement. And then you only value someone based on how much you agree with them. I've been guilty of this. Stop listening to a preacher that offends me. Boop, there's more podcasts. Don't like you anymore. I've learned to continue to be able to disagree with them and still go back and honor them for what they do bring. I usually don't change my opinion. What I realize is, did my heart shift and I can't listen to a message from that person anymore because I disagree with them on this one thing? Because I'm like, if I'm preaching to a church that I'm trying to get Republicans and Democrats to go to the same church and I can't listen to a podcast of somebody, I'm like, hmm. Jesus is going to call me an idiot pretty soon. Let that sink in. Okay. So denominationalism, control, fear, manipulation. Your value for someone based on how you can agree. And when you disagree, you don't know what to do. Simon Sinek, as I quote all the time, I know, blah, blah, blah. But he has some great quotes. There's only two ways to influence human behavior, he says. You can manipulate it or you can inspire it. Very few people or companies can clearly articulate their why and why they do what they do, by why you get at the purpose. I think the church has the clearest purpose of any organization that's ever lived, and yet that gets muddied on so many occasions. What our purpose is anchors us, and it unites us. Our purpose is never going to be agreement. That doesn't mean that the creeds that we formed are not absolutely critical. Because when you violate those tenets of orthodoxy, you're basically saying no to Jesus. But you can say yes to Jesus and to everyone else that says yes to Jesus and say, I am still in your family if we disagree on this, on this, and this, on this. And you know what? I'm not intimidated by disagreeing with you on that. In fact, I want to listen and hear. And I'm not expecting to shift my opinion because I'm not intimidated by yours. But I am going to shift my posture. I'm going to expect that I still have something to glean from you because you're in my family. And my father honors you. I honor you. 
The shift then to apostleships goes like this. It's quiet. Are you okay? Are we tracking? All right. I'm trying, I'm trying to end on this kind of emphasis. In apostleships, we move from the denominational focus on me and agreement with me. Apostleships, the focus is more than me because of family. In apostleships, believers gather because of a covenant relationship. It's a marriage that it starts with, and it continues to be a covenant. And in a covenant, our agreement does not dictate our relationship. Can I get one amen from one married person? Jesus. Okay, thank you. Committed to each other over commitment to opinion. The result then is that I don't leave when I disagree. What do I do when I disagree? Well, I I go pout, and I have a bad attitude, and I I call my therapist or whatever I do, but then I press in to the relationship. I don't leave. What What do we call someone that leaves out of a covenant? Not a good spouse. How do we expect the church... Now, there are things that are, that are that I, I'm, I'm not getting into any of the, the, the real dynamics that happen uh, in, in churches and, and having to move to different uh, communities. What I'm saying, though, we're in a moment where the church is going to arise by those who are willing to step into a place that is an apostleship, not a denomination. That's not about me. It's about more than me. That's not about opinion. It's about a belief system that's based on a covenant relationship. And the result is when we disagree, we press in. Press in. We need you to press in. In fact, the stronger you feel about things, we need you to press into those things. I've started making a list of people that I've seen that have the more passionate views on certain things in our body. And I'm determining to press into them, to encourage them to press into us, not to just ignore and put things aside in the name of Jesus. But under the name of Jesus, will you press in? Because I believe that your opinion on something that matters this much is going to be something that we are going to benefit from if we can allow ourselves not to be offended at how you bring it. In apostleships, the positions aren't put in, people aren't put into these positions because of qualifications alone. That's really important. So just because I have an MDiv, blah, 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 that's not why my position is here. I'm pretty sure not one of you is here because my, oh, thank God, he's got a degree. Maybe that was a, a benefit in some way. I, I do believe that, that studying is an absolutely beautiful, profound, and good thing. But I don't think a single person goes here because of the degree I have, because I'm qualified, because of a piece of paper, or how many hours I put in. People will see your qualifications because of the fire that comes out that you're refined by. But in apostleships, the heart isn't to find people that are qualified. The heart is, I want people to surpass me. So I want to raise someone up that maybe is even more gifted than me. And I want them to move past my ceiling. That's the most natural thing in the family with kids. It's the most natural thing in the kingdom in churches that really believe in apostleships. We want, and we're not intimidated 
by someone that's more gifted. If you're a worship leader and there's someone that comes in that's more gifted, it's not an intimidation. It's then I see a gift on this person. I want them to surpass me. But I realize that I've got something unique. They've got something unique. And my goal is to give everything that I've got of the kingdom and to deposit it into them because I know that will only increase my calling to release what the Lord has given me. I'm not intimidated by the person that's more gifted next to me. When Jesus says greater works will you do, it was just as much a declaration of his humility that he had no ego. Yes, it was speaking into we can do the works of Jesus. It was also speaking into his greatest joy and honor is going to see his kids and the generations surpass more than me. I'm serving a purpose greater than myself. We celebrate every person for who they are rather than how they can serve me and my purpose. So here's, here's what I want to do um, as, as we close. Um, can, we just, um, can we just stand for a moment? And then James, if you could start to come up and start doing your, your beautiful background. As we stand and just pr- prepare just to respond to the Lord for a, for a minute. Um, <clears throat> Does anyone know the most uh, sold Christian book in history? Highest grossing? Besides the Bible, people. Come on, that wouldn't be interesting. That's not an interesting stat. So that was from class. Be quiet. So, uh, so I'm going to read a couple. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Number one, all time. Written in 1418. The Book of Common Prayer. Pilgrim's Progress. Written in 1678. Fox's Book of Martyrs. 1563. Number five, all time, Lord of the Rings. Mm. Number six, The Hobbit. Written in 1937. Number seven, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Number eight, Steps to Christ by Ellen White, 1892. Number nine, Ben-Hur, 1880. Number 10, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, 1970. I'll talk about that later date. Number 11, In His Steps by Charles Sheldon, 1896. I haven't said a single book that has been written since 1970 so far. Number one book written in most of our lifetimes, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. I think now over 100 million copies. This isn't to promote Rick Warren's book, by the way. I want to promote where people are at. People want to know their purpose. People are craving for purpose. I think some of us here today need a perspective shift to be reminded of our purpose. One of the the quotes from that book that that I found helpful, it says this, God wants to redeem human beings from from Satan and reconcile them to himself so we can fulfill the five purposes he created us for. I want you to put your hand on your heart and say, I'm created for these five purposes. To love him. Say it. To love him. To be part of his family. To become like him. To serve him. And to tell others about him. It's that simple. My purpose is that simple. The gospel is that simple. I just command our perspective to shift to the simplicity of our purpose and of that simple gospel today.
those five purposes. You were planned for God's pleasure. You were formed for God's family. You were created to become like Jesus. You were shaped for serving God and you were made for a mission. That's your purpose. That's your purpose. And in that, when we say we are no longer operating from a denominational spirit, but an apostolic spirit, that means we're operating from a family spirit that says that our goal in the kingdom is the personal, the regional, and the global expansion of God's kingdom through his manifest presence so that people everywhere will be set on fire for the God of extraordinary moves of his spirit and that the common places of the world will take note and then take part. Put your hand back on your heart again, if you would. And I want to release seven, seven do's and don'ts of the kingdom, seven goals of how we want to do kingdom apostolic life at Frontier. You can close your eyes, and I just want you to pray this and decree this over yourself and over our body. We value multiplication over growth. That means we don't gather to grow, but to multiply followers of Jesus with our unique DNA. And that means our gathering aims to host the glory of God for a regional impact. And our declaration then becomes, the world needs me to multiply myself. We value multiplication over growth, number one. Number two, we value transformation over comfort. That means we don't prioritize comfort and we do prioritize transformation. Growth and attendance are not the focus. To keep people comfortable is not the focus. We desire to make transformation the central focus, which means change and willingness to be uncomfortable. Would you declare with me again your willingness to be uncomfortable in the coming season because it's worth it? Because it's worth it. Transformation over comfort. I reject the need for comfort. I was born for transformation. Make that a cry of your heart. Number three, we are cultural architects not aiming to be culturally relevant. We don't want to work to be culturally relevant and then just add to cultural norms as a flavor of ministry. We're called to be cultural architects and engage in spiritual warfare and shift the strongholds of our city and the region. Make this declaration with me. I am not in submission to the culture. I am a cultural architect in partnership with Jesus to form and create and release culture everywhere I go. Number five, we value team over celebrity. We don't wanna have our focus on a senior pastor or a worship leader. Our desire is to partner with diverse voices, diverse gifts in the body, bringing us into new territories and making spiritual deposits. We value team over celebrity. Our declaration, I'm part of a team. Make that decree with me. You're part of a team. And the final two, we value mystery over certainty. We value mystery over certainty, which means we don't want to be afraid of the Spirit's intensity that can offend or maybe even impact attendance or giving or many other things, but we will be a place of God's presence, making His presence the aim of success for our gathering. Decree this with me. I don't have to have it figured out. And the last, we value equipping over teaching. What the heck does that mean? Equipping over teaching. Teaching is one gift of the gift of Jesus. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 
teaching is one gift of the representation of the entire equipping of the saints. We value equipping the entire body and all the saints. And we don't want to preach just to communicate concepts and principles. We're a kingdom-focused church that's an equipping center that believes that everybody gets to play. Church is a place not to be fed merely, but to be equipped to heal the sick, minister prophetically, and continue the works of Jesus. Therefore, we need a strong focus on activating the gifts that have been deposited. Not only do we teach, but we mentor and we form. Our goal is to step more and more into the place of equipping the individual to be a part of the most powerful version of them of themselves and the most powerful organization in human history. Decree this with me. Jesus makes me the MVP. Everybody gets to play. Amen. What this requires is another yes. What this requires is a fresh perspective. What this requires is to be uncomfortable. But what this requires is to receive afresh the place that I don't receive anything because of me and everything because of him. Holy Spirit, we give you this place in our hearts. We decree this over our body. We release this goodness of your kingdom over our city and over our nation. And from that place, we have an unusual, unrealistic, supernatural place of hope that doesn't make sense that when we leave here today, we have expectation that doesn't make sense, perspective that doesn't make sense. We have seeds that have been deposited that become trees that birds find their nests in. We have leaven that expands more than we could ever hope or imagine or need because of your breath and your life. 